Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And as you know, I've been telling you for a while now that you should start making plans to come ride our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. But now I get to tell you to stop making plans and just get your ass out here. Because Hartman Rocks in Gunnison is now officially open and the riding is already really, really good. So yep, it is go time here in the Gunnison Valley and we hope to catch you on the Hartman's trails out there in Hartman Rocks. Okay, today on the show we have Steve Matthews, the founder of Vorsprung Suspension, talking with our bike editor David Golay about founding Vorsprung after basically breaking everything in the Whistler Bike Park. Steve and David talk about the past, present, and future of mountain bike suspension and a whole lot more. This is a great conversation and this one goes deep. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Well, Steve, thanks for coming on. And just how are you doing today? And where are you today? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm actually at home, uh, my place in Whistler. Start to uh, be talking bikes. Yeah, really glad to have you on. So I guess to start off, how about you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into mountain bikes in the first place? I grew up in Melbourne in Australia. Um, I originally got into mountain biking because my whole family is actually very much into motorbikes. Uh, but as a kid, I could never afford a dirt bike or a motorbike of any description. So it started off as BMXs and then mountain bikes. And uh, then I kind of got hooked on that. And um, one thing led to another. And before you know it, I'm at uni studying stuff because of my interest in bikes. And yeah, moving over to the other side of the world to ride bikes, and uh, that led to that led to Vorsprung eventually. Yeah, that's cool. So you you think your uh, engineering degree and background kind of was inspired in large part by the interest in bikes to begin with, and that was kind of what got you into mechanical systems and all of that. Yeah, it really was. Um, I actually uh, I studied automotive engineering, which is basically just a relabeled uh, mechanical engineering degree. And that was because at the time I thought that was the the most appropriate thing uh, to study bikes because they have all the sort of elements of uh, you know vehicle design and handling and suspension and things like that. Um, so that was kind of what took me down down that road. And you know at the same time I was riding and racing downhill in Australia. The downhill scene was really big. Uh, this was a sort of mid two thousands. Um, downhill scene was pretty big then. We had a lot, a lot of big names uh, in Australian downhill, like there was Kavarik and Rennie and Hill and uh, Mick Hanna and Jared Graves and all those guys were kind of uh, killing it on the world circuit. And so downhill racing was super popular at the time. And that was, uh, that was my thing for about solidly 10 years, I'd say kind of fairly similar to my story too. I've got a mechanical engineering degree as well and was a mechanical engineer for a solid decade before giving all that up and talking about bikes on the internet. But uh <laughs> <laughs> make two of us. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, not not a dissimilar trajectory at all. So like we were trying to have alluded to, you uh ended up in Whistler after all of that and what I guess Fair to assume that uh, bikes brought you there, but kind of how did you make that all happen? And then 
where did starting Vorsprung sort of fit into that whole trajectory? And uh, how did that relate to your plans to move to Whistler? Was that kind of your method to uh, get to stay there? Or how did that all fit together? Basically, I first came to Whistler on like a working holiday visa. So I came here to spend, you know, I think the plan was a year and a half, like two summers and a winter um, here, just riding bikes and skiing and kind of enjoying the lifestyle. Um, and I was pretty young at the time. I think I was like 23 or something. And while I was over here, uh, I worked a variety of jobs, uh, bike shops, uh, you know, just retail stuff. And uh, it was at the time for someone with my kind of education and skill set, there wasn't a lot of like real jobs. And by not a lot, I mean virtually zero. Most jobs were kind of tourism related or hospitality related uh, or construction. There's a huge construction industry here. But none of those were things that I really slotted into. And I was like, okay, well, there's not really any engineering work here, at least in the mechanical engineering fields. There's plenty of environmental and uh, civil stuff, I think, but um, nothing that nothing that would suit me. And so I ended up kind of thinking, all right, well, I really like it here, but it's a really, really intensely competitive place to live. And, you know, the cost of living is very high. Uh, the wages for all those frontline jobs are pretty low, to be honest. So, uh, and they're way higher now than they used to be, but the, uh, the cost of living was just real hard to deal with for the sort of jobs that I could actually get at the time. And so I sort of thought, well, you know, I'd like to live here for, for much longer, not just kind of a year and a half. And if I want to do that, then I need some way to sustain myself. And so I looked at various sort of options there. I thought, well, maybe I'll go get a, a trade and, you know, work in construction. Um, Canadian tradesmen are pretty tough guys. Working in the snow all winter is not my idea of fun. Um, so that that kind of turned me off it, and I was like, I don't want to spend another four years getting another qualification. Um, so I went back to Australia and I worked as an engineer there in the automotive industry for a while. Um, I was running a, a test lab there, and that kind of while I was there, I'd always had this interest in suspension, and it kind of occurred to me that there wasn't really anyone doing much with suspension in Whistler at the time. There was one shop here that was servicing stuff, but it was kind of, uh, it was almost a bit sort of backdoor at the time. Like it wasn't really pushed. It wasn't um, wasn't super clear that they were servicing stuff or repairing stuff um, to begin with. It wasn't something that was sort of marketed. And this was back in the days when Fox uh, they wouldn't actually sell rear shock parts to most bike shops. Uh, that have this sort of authorized service centers and that was it. Um, so part of my kind of experience there came about from destroying a couple of shocks in the bike park here, uh, which is you know pretty common occurrence as it turns out. And so when I tried to get those fixed locally, I was like, okay, well, no one here is doing anything. Um, I don't happen to have the tools with me. Uh, so it's not something that I can really take on at the time. I thought, okay, well, there's obviously a market for that. So, you know, if only me and the two shocks that I blew up that needed fixing, um, then there's, you know, there's at least that. And so I went home and I kind of thought about it for a while and I worked with a suspension tuning business in Melbourne um, called Tech and Suspension that sadly no longer exists. I worked with a guy there named Ken who basically sort of trained me up in the, the service methodologies uh, for Fox products. And during that time, uh, bought a dyno and uh, some data logging gear. This would have been like 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010, I think. 
Um, so we started kind of measuring stuff and, you know, we're doing a bit of development and setup stuff and a lot of testing uh, just to try and learn as much as we could about suspension um, and how the, how the shocks were working and, you know, whether the changes that we're making would have the desired effect. Uh, and it was really good working with that. Uh, with Ken, he was an exceptionally fastidious, uh, fastidious guy and very meticulous. Uh, and we also had, we sort of came at it from, you know, initial positions and initial opinions that were very different from each other uh, as far as how suspension kind of should be tuned. Um, and over the course of a lot of uh, testing and, you know, measurement, we sort of we were able to converge on things that sort of started to make sense. Uh, and in the process of that, we started developing uh, mathematical methods for uh, suspension tuning, at least as far as being able to sort of compare setups. Um, and that, that actually formed the basis much later on, I think seven years later, of uh, the tractive tuning stuff. Um, so with that kind of uh, service training um, and the that sort of experience in the engineering world that I was sort of trying to develop in parallel. Um, I, after a couple of years of that, I moved back to Whistler um, and started up Vorsprung literally in my garage. It was just a, a side business while I worked in a bike shop in town. Um, and while I was doing that, I was sort of, I was really just trying to test the waters without spending a ton of money because I didn't have a lot of money at the time. Um, just to see, you know, was there a market for what I was trying to offer uh, in terms of servicing and repair? And it turned out, you know, that there was. And first year was, you know, first couple of years were basically like a part-time gig in my uh, in my garage. Uh, while I was doing this service work, I was also, for the first time, I'd gotten a, a sort of a decent trail bike. Like this was 2012 when sort of enduro bikes. Uh, we're just starting to actually get good. You know, we had dropper posts and stuff finally. Um, and I remember buying this bike and just thinking, wow, this suspension is fucking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was the first time I'd ridden um, airsprung suspension. And I was just like, why is this so bad? Like, it's so... I didn't like anything about it. And so I started trying to work on that because initially I'd just taken it for granted that it was, you know, that air sprung was bad and was only done for lightweight and then coil sprung was good because that's what downhill bikes used at the time. That led into the, the initial development of uh, the corset air sleeves and you know that sp that spawned a bunch of other things, the luft cap and the seekers among others. But that's kind of where it all got started. It was just my kind of initial anger at having spent all this money on this bike and really not liking it very much. <laughs> Yeah, well, certainly I've had the experience of uh, blowing up stuff in the Whistler bike park also. There was quite a while there before you were really up and running where I was just making a habit of showing up for a weekend with a couple of shocks in my car ready to swap things out when it all went south. There was, there was definitely a need there. So, forgot the time on it. You were kind of starting it on the part-time basis around 2012, you said. And then how long did it take you to decide that this was something that was really clearly viable and had a market and uh, go all in on doing it full-time? That was actually not until 2016 that it became a full-time year-round thing. So before that, 2012 and 13, I was just working out of my garage, very much, uh, very much a guy in a garage. And then uh, 20, 
the next two years, 2014 and 15, um, I rented a space in Function, uh, which is, for those who don't know, it's kind of the industrial part of Whistler. Uh, rented a shop there that was, you know, seasonally. So I was splitting it six months of the year. Uh, I had a six months of the year, I was splitting it with another guy who ran a ski tuning shop, which obviously happened to work pretty well. Uh, so the seasons were kind of opposed there. And uh, that first year, I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe it'll be busy enough that it sort of pays the bills and it's sort of worth doing. And from the get-go, I was just slammed. Like I had more work than I could actually do. Uh, and, you know, at the time, very naive and not very optimistic, to be honest. I, I was very pessimistic with uh, what I sort of thought would happen each time, which I think in hindsight was a good thing because I was never disappointed. Um, but, you know, I was like, ah, this will never work, but I'll try it anyway, just in case it does. And, you know, each time it kind of kept kept working. And then we started, uh, I think 20, what would that have been? 2014, we were doing all the prototyping for the corsets. And then 2015, sort of hired a bunch of employees to take care of the servicing so I could focus more on the development stuff. Um, but again, it was still only a seasonal thing. And then... In 2016, we sort of realized that uh, the amount of money that we were spending on having these parts machined elsewhere, we could actually, you know, that would cover the machine payments. So we bought machinery ourselves. And yeah, that's when it became, you know, you can't uh, easily move a six ton uh, CNC machine in and out of your uh, seasonal shop front. <laughs> so uh, that one had lived there year round. And that meant, you know, a much bigger level of financial commitment, still very small, you know, in the business sense of things. Uh, but that was when we started really being able to develop products much faster and more thoroughly because once we had the machinery in-house, uh, it took us a good while to learn to use it. We weren't very proficient with it initially, but um, once we had the machinery in-house, then we were able to start building prototypes and testing them on the dyno like right there and then and then making changes and going back and going through. You know, there was uh, one damp piston, for example, we did like I think 11 iterations of in a day. Um, whereas, you know, previously that would have been a month, maybe a month or so to get each prototype done. So it would have been a year's worth of, uh, prototyping in like a day. So that, uh, that allowed us to really try a whole bunch of different things and test and iterate quickly and also sort of find the limits of things because we could, we could sort of go way too far with things deliberately and see like, well, what is the actual limit? You know, where does this get, you know, too extreme in some, some way or another? Um, and that's... You know, that has then just evolved into growth for the past five years into the product line that we have now and definitely a lot more manpower in there right now and a bit more breadth of products, I suppose, and services. Yeah. So wanted to get into that a bit more, kind of talk a bit about some of your uh, older products and work our way up in the history of Vorsprung to getting to what you all have going right now. And so you've talked a bit kind of tangentially about the corset in particular, but uh, I think for what's just recap real quick for people who might not be familiar. That was a, essentially an aftermarket air sleeve for a number of Fox rear shock air shocks, if I have that right. Tell us a little bit more about that. You kind of got to this a little bit. You had this experience with your first kind of Enduro bike with air suspension and were underwhelmed with the performance. And how did that lead to the sort of concept for the corset? And what was the idea behind it? So my initial experiences um, with air suspension uh, for long travel bikes, you know, I'd, I'd always sort of accepted if it was like a short travel, like 100 mil travel cross country race bike, just the fact that you had to run it so stiff was going to make the suspension rough. 
But once I got a long travel bike, I think it was 160 mil, and I was like, oh, this should be, you know, it's three quarters as much travel as my downhill bike. It should feel sort of vaguely comparable at least. It shouldn't be miles off, but it was really drastically different. And so I started looking into why that was. And I started by sort of plotting out the curves, um, the airspring curves, and developing a calculator for that. And there is the airspring curves are more complicated than they sort of first appear. There's ways to look at them simplistically, and you know, when even in our own marketing material, we have to present them simplistically just so that it it makes sense to people. Um, but they have a few different aspects to them. And the main thing that we kind of realized was that the initial uh, stroke was more or less determined, the behavior of that was more or less determined by the negative chamber and the drop off in pressure in the negative chamber as the suspension was compressed. And so from plotting that out, we're able to go through a whole lot of different uh, iterations uh, and then start prototyping and testing. And once we started prototyping, then we found that things didn't actually behave as directly as the most obvious uh, calculations would actually predict. So then that sort of necessitated more testing, more prototyping uh, in order to actually develop the, the calculation method so that we could calculate things accurately and have it all validated and have it be trustworthy. And a big aspect of that turned out to be heat and not in the not in the sense that you would initially think, like not in the sense that the damper heats up and makes the air hotter and therefore the thing gets stiffer, but more the fact that when you compress air quickly, it doesn't lose any of the temperature, any of the heat, the energy that it's built up. Whereas if you compress it slowly, then it does. And so you have these two kind of uh, limit cases, shall we say, called adiabatic compression which is or expansion, which is basically when it happens fast enough that no heat energy is lost or gained or you have isothermal uh, compression or expansion, which refers to it being so slow that the temperature can remain consistent. So what we found is that air suspension is constantly operating in velocity ranges between those two extremes. You can get close to the adiabatic stuff and you can get very close to the isothermal limit condition, but you, you never quite get to either one. And so that, that necessitated actually quite a lot of development of um, the calculation mechanisms just to make sure that what we were doing was representative of reality. Um, and that meant you know, calculating how much heat was gained and lost by the system just due to compressing air. And that then led us through, I think, about six or seven iterations of prototypes for the, for the corsets before we eventually uh, put them into production. And yeah, once we did, we were very taken aback at the, the demand for them. It seemed like they were sort of a hit right out of the gate and very happy with that, but also didn't really expect it being a, a basically unknown company up to that point. Right. That was right around when you guys first came onto my radar, certainly when those came out. And so I think it's really interesting what you just said about how your kind of initial stab at a mathematical model for what the airspring was doing was so far off and that it wasn't taking the thermal effects into account. And so I'm, I'm guessing you were developing a model and then doing some dyno testing, attempting to validate it, and then sort of bit of scratching your head when the two didn't match up and working your way towards a model that actually reflected reality more or less. Is that that fair way of assessing it? Yeah, exactly. There was also some other difficulties with that. Like Fox had a patent on uh, the equalization dimple, so the, the self-equalizing uh, sort of air spring system. 
Um, and so we had to sort of design around that. We couldn't use that system. So we had to use, you know, a pair of holes and a third outer chamber uh, in addition to a sort of external positive and typically an external negative uh, chamber to um, get around that. And that was, you know, there were a few sort of design difficulties with that. Just making sure those holes were deburred and not cutting up seals was uh, was tricky enough. But yeah, that was, uh, that kind of all got sorted eventually and we found you know, guys that were willing to make them. There's a bunch of machine shops that looked at them like, no way, I'm not trying to make that tiny wall thickness. It's uh, like, it looks like a real simple part, but you have no idea how difficult that is actually going to be to make. And uh, as we found out for ourselves when we started making them in-house in 2016, that uh, that was quite correct. Yeah. So then from there, you uh, followed that up with the lift cap, which is sort of a bit of a similar concept, I suppose, only for a fork application when did those first come out and uh what did the development of those look like how did you wind up figuring out that product uh the lift cap came about because this sort of goes back a fair way 2013 model year i think it was uh, fox released the ctd forks and shocks um that really weren't they didn't go down well basically uh they had a number of mechanical problems and a number of performance issues. Um, and at the same time, the exact same time, RockShox released the Pike, which was their first like really good fork. Uh, and at the time, everyone was like, oh, I ditched the, the CTD, uh, buy a Pike. And so um, I actually did that myself at some point, bought a Pike. And I was just like, this feels like it has the exact same problems that, uh, <laughs> that my <laughs> AirShocks have had. Uh, it feels really stiff in the initial travel and like, you know, not for a very long way. It might only be for the first 10 or 20 millimeters, but I remember the experience of it just being like, oh my God, being sold up the river on this. Um, and previously, because I'd owned the, all the air forks that I'd owned had been Fox up to that point that all had coil negative springs, which as long as you were in the right weight range, um, they actually worked quite well. They didn't work very well as the travels got significantly longer or uh, you got outside of a certain sort of fairly narrow weight range. Um, but within that range, they worked very well. Um, and so I had never really come across that particular brand of, uh, of initial stiffness before that point. And after writing, I was like, okay, well, that's good because that gives us uh, something else we can improve on fairly easily. Um, it wasn't, you know, anything particularly advanced we just looked at it and sort of thought well we can we can definitely add a bit of volume to the negative chamber here that's uh that's going to improve it immensely and so we started prototyping the lift caps but the initial prototypes like we we pushed that as far as we really could to the point where we were sort of limiting the travel of a 160 mil fork to like 130 mil because it got so progressive felt awesome at the start of the travel but you know it uh I sort of realized there's going to be a lot of people that weren't happy about losing a quarter of their fork travel. Right. You run into the packaging problems, particularly with a single crown. You don't have any takeaway positive spring volume to add negative volume. You're just trading one for the other. And it's only so far you can go with that before you, yeah, like you said, making the fork insanely progressive. Exactly. Yep. So that was kind of one of the limitations that we, uh, that we discovered with that because as you, if you were to sort of plot out the um, force, sorry, not the force, spring rate versus displacement curve of an older style air spring. So before what I would consider the sort of modern generation of air springs that came about, um, you know, with the corset and the 
debonair and evil air sleeves and whatnot. If you go back before that, the spring rate uh, versus displacement graph basically looks like a half pipe. So it's extremely high initial starting point, drops very, very rapidly at the first few millimeters of the travel, and then sort of flattens out in the middle and then raises, like rises sharply again uh, at the end. And so what we kind of worked out was like, okay, well, you can cut out the kind of the start and the end to some degree, but you need much bigger volumes to do it. But you also need much higher pressures. And so that was another limiting factor with the corset. We definitely could have taken those further in some regards, but you ended up, um, especially for heavier riders on uh, on fairly high leverage frames, you ended up just at absurd pressures. I think one of the prototypes we were running at, like, we had to get a special shock pump to pump it up. We were running at like 500 <laughs> PSI or something like that. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, yeah. And the thing was about the size of, you know, it would have been about four inches across. It was uh, absolutely enormous. So that obviously wasn't going to work. Right. And run into all kinds of fitment issues with that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, maybe not four inches. Maybe it was closer to three, but it was significantly bigger than a standard uh, standard air can. So to give you some idea, the standard uh, like Fox use a one and a half inch piston in their uh, air shocks. So we're like, you know, for a single sleeve, uh, single wall air, air sleeve, we were roughly doubling the diameter of that. So proportionally, it was massive. Yeah. You kind of hinted on this, but uh, one of the things I was wanting to ask you about is, um, particularly with the corset and lift cap, you know, you had these products that were, in large part, just making a bigger negative chamber on these air sprung forks, and then it didn't take too long for most of the big manufacturers, Fox and RockShox, et cetera, to, I don't know how much they were cribbing your notes exactly, but certainly bigger negative chambers came along relatively quickly after you introduced those things. and. If you're in the business of making these aftermarket hop-up products for suspension parts, you know how much of a worry is it for you that Fox or RockShox or whoever is just going to see what you're doing and go, "Oh, that's a good idea. We should do that too." And kind of, how hard is it to stay ahead of what's going on with the current state of the art from the OE perspective? And uh, how much do you worry about them just sort of? treating it as if you're doing their R&D for them to an extent. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually a question we get fairly fairly frequently. It would have been more of an issue 5 years ago, I would say. As, you know, as our business has grown, it's put us in a, a position where we can make more complex parts um, and we don't have to really we don't have to abide by a lot of the constraints that are placed upon OEM products, right? So, we don't have to hit a certain weight target or a certain um, you know, we can basically make products that for a lot of people aren't really what they want. So, for example, uh, with the lift cap, if you were to install that in a 180 mil Fox 36 uh, from 2018 to uh, 2018 to 2020, then you would find that almost certainly you wouldn't be able to use full travel at any like pressure that uh, that you realistically wanted to run. So. And that would be with no tokens and anything else. It just makes it very progressive uh, because it's the equivalent of adding a token and requiring higher pressure. Um, so in that regard, we would make a product that if that was sold OEM, wouldn't work for every single application. There is obviously, you know, Fox and RockShox are constantly benchmarking against 
everything on the market, you know, whether that's our stuff. I, I know they benchmark our stuff. We, you know, they buy it from us. So it's no no huge surprise there. There is obviously um, intellectual property protection uh, in the form of patents as well. Uh, we did actually file a patent application uh, for the Secus and the technology inside that. So that will, yeah, that will basically be defended IP once that's uh, once that's gone through. That's also the kind of thing where there is a certain amount of there is a certain amount of improvement you can make simply by throwing money at stuff. If you're willing to deal with uh, more parts or more variants, um, then you can always make things better. And you know, this is you see this in Formula One, for example. The teams with the biggest budgets typically win. And we are able to do things like we can add parts to a fork. We can say, okay, this will make your fork heavier, like the smash pot. If any, I would say, if any uh, of the major fork manufacturers came to market with a, you know, a fork that weighed the same as one with a smash pot installed now, uh, I guess the Z1 coil uh, pretty much does that actually, but it's it's still a little bit lighter, just due to the the lower amount of oil predominantly, but. If they were to come to market and try to sell to big OEM buyers at that weight, then you'll have product managers at Trek and Giant and Specialized being like, no, sorry, that's not acceptable. You know, go back and make it lighter, go back and make it easier and cheaper to adjust. And you know, some of the issues that we um, that we run into that would become much more difficult to manage at the scales that Fox and RockShox are operating on. Uh, things like, you know, if you're going to have a coil, like a coil kit for a fork or a coil spring in your fork, you need to have uh, a specific spring rate that works for you. That spring rate, even for two riders of the same weight, same travel, that are riding the same terrain, uh, can vary significantly. And so we have to work um, as you know as closely as we can with those customers to make sure that they're they're on the right they're on the right rate. If you were to sell a hundred thousand of those kits, then all of a sudden you have a huge amount of customer service expense, basically, and that has to be factored in when you consider uh, manufacturing things like that. You know, our job is to work with each individual rider, each individual customer, uh, and that's you know why we predominantly work through like directly through other uh, suspension workshops around the world that are working directly with the customer. Um, we don't want there to be too many interruptions in communication between us and the, the end customer. Whereas if you are selling OEM, it's relatively indirect because the people designing and tuning the things are not the same people that are actually you know, dealing with customer service, for example. Um, they're not the ones directly hand, handling the customer questions and setup queries, things like that. So in our case, we have quite an advantage there just in terms of the fact that our customer is actually the writer. Um, if we're selling through a, uh, you know, three or four intermediaries, if we're selling it to a bike company who then sells to a distributor, a distributor sells to a retailer, a retailer sells to the customer, then you don't have that same direct communication between, you know, the guy who is designing it and the person who's writing it. So we have the opportunity there to to really try to make sure that we are getting people the right advice um, and on the right on the right track with their setup and uh, their options there. That we wouldn't that I, that I can't really see a plausible way um, at the moment to be done on a broader scale. That could potentially be done at least on the damping side with electronics. So you know. 
electronics are coming. Um, that's going to be part of the the suspension landscape sooner or later. You know, live valve and the EI stuff were definitely you know the first steps there. Well, I guess EI was the first step. Um, live valve was the first time that they actually put an electronic valve into the shock in a, a real production system. I guess since the oh, if you go back miles to the K2s like 20 years ago. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think those were an especially uh, reliable or you know broadly utilized uh, shock, unfortunately. But the live valve stuff is the kind of the first step in that direction. And uh, as the technology improves, I think we'll see more and more of that. Uh, I believe Olin's maybe working on it, and they've had you know electronic suspension control in the automotive world for I think 30 years now. Yeah, it's been quite a while. I was actually just looking through that on their site a little while ago, uh, working on review of some of their current stuff. But that all makes a lot of sense about the kind of customer service side of it, too. I had had the thought that you guys have the luxury of having certainly fewer cost constraints than you know Fox or RockShox do if they're trying to sell massive OEM volume, and also the luxury of not having to have every single one of your products work for the you know absolutely every rider out there you you know yeah i mean i'm sure you're you're aiming for a, a as broad a slice as you can for the most part for sure that's why we actually offer multiple products that you know at first glance appear to compete with each other um because what works best for one rider and what their priorities are is obviously not the same as uh, as everyone else and and you see it in the major manufacturers product lines as well you know fox have got like five different lineups of fork uh 5 6 32 34 36 38 and 40 6 and that's just forks you know there's within that that each of those has 10 or 20 of its own variants so you know they they're trying to cater to certain price points and certain use cases as well uh, we have the luxury, as you say, of being able to pick and choose what we want to target. We don't have to um, make products that we don't have a particular interest in. We don't have to make things that work for absolutely everyone. We can say, no, you know, you're too heavy or too light or you know, whatever it may be. Most of our riders, most people who have been mountain biking long enough uh, to have heard of us are people who are reasonably serious riders. So we don't have to really account for someone who's an absolute beginner, buys a mountain bike for the first time, and is kind of wobbling along green trails and then not being able to use full travel. Um, they're typically not the people that we're having to cater to. So we can we can afford to have things like higher minimum limits um, on our levels of progression in an air spring, for example. It's probably the best example. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that was largely what I meant. By that comment, that you know, you, yeah, you you are able to target a little bit more of a specific market rather than having to make the you know your thirty six or whatever work for everyone who might be buying something in that kind of travel range and whatnot. Yeah. So, well, yeah, having talked about the corset and lift cap and all that, there, let's sort of move into the smash pot and seekest two of the newer fork uh, spring alterations you've got. And let's just start by having you uh, talk us through both of those and what they are and how they work. Yeah, okay. So the shortest possible version of that is that Smashbot is a coil spring and Seekus is an air spring add-on. They are both trying to converge on this a similar kind of 
characteristic that we have more or less sort of empirically determined to be something close to ideal. Um, it, I'm not going to claim that it's perfect. Nothing is perfect, but something that is linear through the first, say, two-thirds of the travel uh, and gives you sufficient bottoming protection as well. Um, so the Smashpot being a coil spring, coil springs are inherently extremely linear. Um, there's really, for the most part, no significant variation from a linear spring rate there. Um, because of that, they can be quite easy to bottom out, particularly in a fork where you don't have the advantage of a progressive linkage uh, on the rear end to give you that ramp up. So because of that, they they do kind of need some uh, some sort of bottoming protection. And if you look back, you know, historically, pretty much every successful coil spring system out there has had some kind of uh, bottoming protection. In the early coil 40s, they had a hydraulic bottom out control. Boxes uh, for years had this drop stop thing, which was like a um, basically an elastomer that the thing ran into halfway through the travel. Uh, Marzocchi used that as well as uh, oil heights to control bottoming. Manitou have used hydraulic bottom out control. Um, I think if you go back far enough, oil heights as well, uh, and so on and so forth. Like even the um, some of the forks, like the current. Uh, some of the forks would basically use like the ramp up of the air compressed in the lowers to give you some bottoming control there. And so with the Smashpot, we opted to go for a hydraulic bottom out control because that was the one that struck us as offering the biggest advantages uh, in terms of you have something that only generates as much force as necessary. So when you're deep into the stroke, uh, if you're moving towards bottom out quickly, it'll give you a lot of bottom out control. If you're only moving there slowly, it will let you use more of the travel. Uh, it won't basically store more energy than is necessary in the spring, which an air spring obviously does. Uh, so that means that you have something that manages the different uh, approaches, like as, as in um, kinematic, kinematic might not be the right term, the different velocities at which you can approach bottom out and the different input energies, um, the hydraulic system can manage very well. So you hit it harder, it'll give you more resistance. Uh, the spring, by contrast, won't really do that in quite the same way. Air springs do give you a bit more ramp up. Um, as you hit them harder, they give you something kind of equivalent to compression damping um, in terms of their hysteretic behavior. And the, the Seekers, to compare to the Smashbot, you know, Likewise, it has a very linear initial stroke, which is done by a bit of trickery with the, the negative chamber. Um, and it also attaches, there's actually like multiple chambers inside the Seekers. It also attaches to the lower leg volume. So you essentially expand the lower leg volume to reduce the ramp up that comes from that because on some forks in particular, uh, like on some of the earlier pikes, you would have something like about 50 pounds of force. That's about 23 kilos or so worth of force at 230 newtons roughly um, coming from the ramp up in the lowers alone. So like at bottom out, that's how much force you would need to overcome independent of what is actually going on with the S-ring. Uh, meaning, you know, you can take the, take the top cap off and that is how much force it will actually take to bottom out. So we sort of identified that as necessary um, to to make the, the end of the travel more usable because some of the you know experiences that we'd had with the lift cap, for example, that if you make the negative chamber too big and you're just robbing from the positive, um, then obviously you increase the progression uh, as well as increasing the necessary operating pressure. So 
The Seekers aimed to decrease the initial spring rate and decrease the final spring rate. So proportionally, you're increasing the spring rate in the middle of the travel. Um, and that we're able to, you know, through a lot of uh, trial and error and like a great many design iterations on that, um, finally kind of come up with something that uh, that worked how we wanted. And, you know, for better or worse, it had to be mounted outside the fork. It's not the kind of thing, you know, we would never want to mount something outside the fork if it could be housed internally, uh, but that was the only uh, the only practical way to achieve it that we could see uh, at the time. You know, short of going to some extremes with uh, with manufacturing, and that would have just pushed the cost way way out there. Sure. Yeah. At some point, you know, there's there's only so much room in a forklift. Totally. And that's that's exactly it. You've you've got to apportion that um, that volume somehow. So like. You have to say, okay, let's say we've got one liter total volume uh, inside the stanchion and the lowers. Um, how are you going to how are you going to break that down between uh, you know your positive chamber, negative chamber, lower leg volume? Um, you need to account for oil and lubrication. You need to account for initial volumes and final volumes. And so, we had tried um, on the design level some way more outlandish stuff than what the Seekers ended up being. Um, and we sort of had to abandon it because it just it was too ridiculous you know there were some of them had a lot of moving parts uh some of them would have ended up uh almost as heavy as a coil spring some of them uh yeah just had like a bunch of moving seals and crazy things like that that we just didn't uh we didn't think we were going to be significantly robust um in the way that you know we were able to make the seekers so yeah i've been spending a little bit of time on one unfortunately of uh not as much as I would have liked by now due to some totally unrelated mechanical issues with the bike I've got it on. But uh, initial impressions have been really good. We'll have a full review of that up on the site in a bit once I'm able to spend some more time on it and get that bike fixed up. But uh, it certainly does seem like it uh, does what you're claiming it does. I mean, the in terms of kind of lighter early stroke and proportionally more mid-stroke support uh, is definitely been my experience with it in the limited time I've gone on it so far. It's been cool. I'm pretty impressed with that. Yeah, glad to hear that. So, I guess the um, next sort of Vorsprung product that I wanted to touch on a little bit, and you mentioned a little bit of the mathematical modeling that went into this in the early days, but um, you also have your tractive system and uh, the accompanying fractive fork version of the same. And uh, so, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about what those are and how you kind of came up with those theories or the concepts behind them and what you're offering? So, in I think 2008, I was doing like a final year project, final year thesis at university. And what we were, what we were studying was the way that the the bike interacted with the rider and the way that the rider was part of the suspension. And one of the things in the process of going through um, and trying to develop a mathematical model of the bike and the damper and the spring and, you know, the linkage and everything else, I sort of came to realize that um, sort of independent of the, the original aim of that project, I came to realize that the real power in um, tuning things per given rider and per given sort of scenario was in basically dimensionless numbers. 
So by dimensionless numbers, I mean things that can be um, that, like expressed as a ratio, for example. So um, things like SAG are a good uh, a good example of that. So you have if you have 30% SAG, uh, or let's say a simpler number, let's say you have 25% SAG on a dead linear uh, spring and dead linear leverage ratio if it's uh, on the rear end. That means that your body weight in the position that it's in is using one quarter of the suspension travel. And so you would need a vertical acceleration of uh, like four Gs. So four times your body weight to bottom that out. Um, that is something that's very useful because it doesn't really matter what you weigh and it doesn't really matter what the spring rate is. And it doesn't really matter what bike you're on or anything like that. You can compare two people on two different bikes using, um, using numbers like that. And so, what we started doing uh, when I was working with Tekken was looking at like, okay, well, we've got one bike set up really well. How do we then, you know, get another bike set up really well? And so we went back to uh, the mathematical models and started looking at things like that. And, you know, there's a certain um, there's a certain number of things that work well as long as the the amount of travel is the same. Like you can look at your your damping coefficients. Um, sorry, not your damping coefficient, your damping ratio and your, uh, your sag. And between those two, you, you know, you can get a pretty good idea of uh, a ballpark setup. They don't account for some of the sort of nuances, but that, that will give you something completely writable if you just look at those two. And so back at that time, which was, you know, before trail bikes and enduro bikes really got any good, Everyone was basically just riding, everyone that cared about suspension behavior at the time was riding downhill bikes. And so it was relatively easy for us to go, okay, well, 200 mil downhill bike, 200 mil downhill bike, we can compare that. But once you start wanting to tune things for a broader number of people in you know, a, a wider range of uh, scenarios, then you need uh, a more robust way of, of doing it. And so that entailed developing further mathematical models um, and equivalences, basically. And that was the foundation of the, the tractive system and the fractive system to a lesser degree. The tractive system is quite a bit more complex than the, the fractive one. The tractive tuning accounts for a whole lot of different variables, uh, you know, the amount of travel, rider weight, bike weight, and, you know, even it is able to account for things like uh, differing weight biases and things like that, although we very infrequently uh, use that. Um, but the leverage rate is a big one, as is the uh, as is the amount of travel. So different amounts of travel require different damping ratios, uh, and, it, and it doesn't behave in anything like in a particularly linear manner um, to get sort of equivalent outcomes and outputs from uh, from the basically at the wheel, um, because that's where it really matters. You know what goes on inside the bike, however it achieves that result, the wheel is all it really matters. And so we came up with a, a way to calculate all that and to be able to share information with our tuning partners around the world so that they could, you know, relatively quickly and easily work out, okay, what tune should work best for this rider. And that way they can plug all the values into a calculator and make very informed decisions on uh, on what they're offering the rider. So they can say, okay, well, you know, this guy's particularly aggressive. This is a sort of a benchmark that we that works well for most people. He might want it a bit firmer. Um, or this guy's running, you know, very low sag, so he's going to want a bit firmer rebound. But all those things, um, rather than having to individually dyno test and, you know, use a lot of trial and error, uh, that's 
expensive and time consuming and frequently just has to be omitted for the sake of cost, uh, which is why there's you know a lot of suspension tuners in uh, both the mountain bike and motocross industries that just kind of do it by more or less guesswork, really, um, just sort of or the sort of seat of the pants tuning um, where they'll revalve things. Because the dyno testing itself is expensive and slow, um, that is really what tends to be the first thing that gets cut out of those processes. And we were like, okay, well, that's not really acceptable to us because, you know, as as we like to say, if you're not measuring, you're guessing. And so, in order to provide people with a way to make consistent decisions, we, we developed the calculator that would let them not necessarily like spit out the exact tune that someone should use, but give them a consistent way to benchmark what they were doing. So that allows for the tuners around the world uh, to account for their local terrain, uh, their interaction with the rider and their specific requests. For example, if the rider asks for something uh, particularly compliant and softer, then you know we'll give them a, a soft compression tune. If they say, oh, okay, I live in Queenstown and I like to hit all the jumps at Dream Track and uh, huck to flat from 20 feet up all, t- all the time, um, which seems to be quite quite a number of people in Queenstown. Um, <laughs> then you know we'll give them a, a firmer compression tune and potentially uh, you know tune the rebound accordingly as well. And so those sort of things they come about from a, a pragmatic basis of just wanting to be able to do things consistently and repeatedly and in an economical way. I think. Over time, you know, the ideal scenario is that that is actually replaced with electronics. The only problem so far is that uh, no one seems to be super capable of doing that yet. And I think the main the main limitation really is weight and power consumption of uh, of electronic suspension parts. They're actually quite power intensive. So we'll see if that uh, ever makes it to market. But I think that's that will be the kind of the long-term competitor. That's really interesting. So, is it sort of fair to say that the main concept behind the modeling is a way to actually formulate a relatively direct comparison for evaluating different setups of you know you have a, two very different riders on two different bikes, perhaps with different leverage curves, and be able to yeah. have a get your head around how the setups that you want for those two people are similar or different from each other, compare them in a way that is meaningful rather than, you know, like you said, you are, if you're dynoing just the shock, right, you're not accounting for anything that's happening with the uh, leverage curve of the bike. And that's not directly translating to what's happening with the rear wheel. Um, just add a bit of com- complexity for uh, the rear end of a suspension system, particularly, you know, forks, obviously, at least for a, you know, normal telescoping forks a bit simpler, but um, the the bit about electronics is interesting. So, how you know, if we ignore the kind of practical limitations of the system, like you mentioned, you know, weight and the power requirements and all that, in a in a conceptual sense, how do you envision electronics replacing that in at some point in the future once the rest of the technology gets there to make it all actually come together? Let's say power is no concern. Then it's relatively straightforward. Um, you use a proportional solenoid valve. And Cannondale actually did this with a, a fork called the Simon uh, maybe like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, it's basically using a 
constant, constantly controlled um, solenoid valve that could move quite quickly uh, as a proportional valve. So it would basically replace the shim stack and you know the the adjusters and everything. It would just do everything based on sensors. Um, the only thing is running a an electrical system like that in constant overflow and constant use. I think they said the battery life is about two hours. So if you want to go out for a, you know a ride all day, that obviously isn't going to work. You know, and then at the that, that's the sort of maximal um, integration of electronics as I see it. Like if you just have everything go through an electronic valve, um, the more minimal implementations would be something like ShockWiz, where you have um, some sensor or like what motion instruments are doing with their data logging sets. We have some sensors that uh, have algorithms to give you advice on setup. So that then keeps the system completely mechanical, but um, you integrate some sensors into it so that everything, you know, things are measured and advice is provided to uh, to the rider. And that might be, you know, for a lot of people, that stuff is actually really, really helpful because um, if you do, if you don't know anything about suspension setup, then chances the chances of you setting it up in a way that is, you know, remotely close to what you would ideally want are pretty low. So having any kind of feedback like that that is automated is a, I think a really really good starting point. The next, I guess, step um, towards you know from minimal to maximal is like what what Fox are doing with Live Valve, as it currently as it's currently sold, and I'm sure they're developing this uh, considerably further. As it's currently sold, Live Valve is basically like if you imagine a uh, a leprechaun sitting in your bottle cage, just flicking the lockout lever on your shock at you know. In a, in a very, very short space of time. So it just like watches the front wheel. Oh, front wheels moving, unlock the shock or the rear wheel uh, for that matter, and then lock it back up. But in either of those modes, it is a mechanical shock. And so by doing that, Fox have done some very clever things, um, which is to preserve the battery life because it only has to flip a solenoid valve from one position to another. And when it's, when it's not moving, it's not using any energy. Um, and they've also made it, They've made it simple and robust, and it has a good failsafe in the sense that you know if anything goes wrong with it, um, then it just works as a mechanical shock. Uh, it, it does stay in whichever mode, whether that's locked out or locked or unlocked, I should say. But it it's a it's a pretty smart first step into the market. So it doesn't. It, it's a lot less. Um, it's a lot more failsafe and a lot less potentially performative than uh, what Canada were doing with the Simon. Um, Fox do have some stuff, I believe, in their automotive live valve um, implementations that is much more continuous control and not just a binary kind of on-off switch for the for the lockout. If they can solve the uh, if they can solve the issues with power consumption there, then we could see some really interesting stuff. Because um, you know, in, in my ideal world, no one shouldn't have to know how to set up their suspension. Like you don't, you don't get in your car and know how to, uh, you know, map your fuel injection. It's done for you, right? And so, those sort of things, I feel like the sort of ten or twenty year goal for mountain bikes should be that you get on the bike and you ride, and you don't have to know anything technical about it, um, because you know, as much as nerds like us love to to learn that stuff and kind of make the most of it, 
the average person and very frequently, including myself, like I often just want to get on my bike and go ride. I don't want to mess around with things. I don't want to have to kind of think about it endlessly. It's kind of, that's something that I do for fun. And I want that to perform as well as it can with the minimum of effort from me as a rider. So I think that is kind of, uh, that's where things I think can and should sort of progress there. That makes sense. So you, you're thinking that in some maximized future world, you can sort of dispense with the need for individualized valving for stuff. Because if you have a an electronic system that can control all of it and has feedback for what is happening in real time and a, a big enough range that it can operate in, that just covers everybody and you can you're there already. You don't have to do anything with the setup yourself. It's just the shock's going to figure it out as you go. That would be that would be ideal. I think there's um, there's obviously practical limitations on that when weight when weight becomes a concern. And so um, I'm sure someone will come up with some very clever way to do that in a sufficiently sort of power conscious way. I'm kind of curious to see how that evolves because you know I would absolutely love if tuning could be done electronically rather than mechanically like that reducing the difficulty of, of tuning something like so you don't have to pull a shock entirely apart and revalve it uh rebuild it and whatnot which is kind of you know usually an hour or two process you'd be able to go through far more setups far more quickly uh to arrive at something optimal if it could be done purely electronically and it could be automated and yeah like, i guess that's a fair point too that if, you, if it's all done electronically you've got very easy to ability to sort of just tell the shock, okay, no, I want it to do this differently and have it aim for a different sort of target and automatically adjust to that. Yep. I think there's a lot of um there's a lot of difficulties that come about with that as well because one thing that we've kind of seen time and time again in the suspension world is that every time you add a new variable, you make it much harder to sort of achieve an optimal setup. So, you know, if you add another adjuster um, or you add a like a linkage adjustment position um, or you add some other means of adjusting the spring rate or the, the progression curve, each time you do that, you none of those things are ever completely independent. They always overlap with something else in some way. And so it's never then obvious what it is that you change in order to achieve a certain effect. Like, you know, for example... If you have two rebound adjusters, probably, you know, in most implementations that we've seen so far, both of them affect uh, most of the, the working range of velocities. And so then you're like, okay, well, now I've got two things that kind of do the same thing. How do I work out what to make better first? And if you're able to do that um, computationally, then maybe you can do that more effectively. Um, but then you you know you've introduced another variable in the form of the computation, and then you've got things like you need to worry about the reliability of that. You need to worry about the cost, weight, uh, power consumption, all the rest of that. So then, and you know the sensors required and things like that. So now you've gone and asked someone. And in this case, it would be the people designing it. Here, have like a problem, like a mathematical problem with way more variables. And now that you've got you know say five or ten times as many variables as you had to contend with before. Um, get the best possible result out of it. And the result that you get has an obviously higher potential um, for performance, but it might the, the difficulty of achieving that might actually be higher than achieving you know, a, a given level of performance 
with a lower number of variables and a simpler system kind of comparable to mechanical dampers. And I think for the, that's part of the reason we haven't really seen, even in the motorsport world, uh, where um, you know the power consumption of a proportional valve is not significant compared to the power generated by the vehicle. Even in the, the motorsports world, we haven't really seen electronically controlled suspension take off the way that you would, you know, or at least I would have initially expected. So I'm very curious to see what the long-term kind of result of that is with mountain bikes and whether, you know, whether we get to the point where it becomes um, like the high-end thing to have or whether it sort of stays a bit of a sideshow kind of thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And that kind of brings us into some of the next stuff I want to talk about too is I'm just curious to get your take on a number of other kind of directions that the suspension world could be moving in and why that will or won't happen as the case may be. First one I'm curious to hear your thoughts on are why in the current market, coil rear shocks are still relatively prevalent, especially for longer travel applications, but uh, coil forks are far less common. And sort of the obvious thing that pops out to me is that with a rear shock, you've got the ability to add some progression via the linkage, which which you don't with a telescoping fork. But uh, is there more to it, you think? Or am I, is that kind of the biggest reason right there? There's that and the fact that rear shock springs are not so model specific. So to have like you know, looking at Fox's lineup, for example, you got uh, a 36 mil, you know, 36, 38, and 40 mil forks that would all be reasonable contenders um, or reasonable sort of use cases for a coil spring. So then for each of those, you have different lengths internally, um, you have different diameters, so the springs need to be different diameters, and then you have a wide range of necessary spring rates. So you've kind of got three times, let's say, minimum of five spring rates, which, you know, in my opinion is nowhere near enough, but that's, you know, what we seem to be seeing from uh, the major manufacturers that are that are offering coil springs at the moment. And then, so you got three platforms, say uh, five spring rates each there, you got like minimum 15 springs. Each one of those needs to be independently weight optimized and whatnot, because the fork market in particular is very weight conscious. Um, and uh, the weight difference seems to be bigger in forks. Um, the, which is not something you would have necessarily immediately, uh, predicted, but for example, you can get like a Cane Creek inline coil, uh, that is about the same weight as a float X2. So I think the weight difference seems to be given less, uh, given less consideration or is often less with the, the rear. And especially when we look at, you know, the sort of heavier duty air shocks and, it's easier to swap the springs out, I suppose. You undo two bolts and a, a collar by hand, and they're not—they never have any noise issues either. Like the coils on rear shocks. Actually, I shouldn't say never. Occasionally, you'll get like a, you occasionally you'll get that goose honk when one rubs on like the plastic spring isolator, but very rarely. Whereas in a fork, um, I would say for coil springs, like the number one complaint that we've had across, you know all models of coil fork in the past has been noise. So whether that was, you know, downhill forks like 40, Boxer, Triple Eight, 380, the number one complaint was spring knock. You know, the smash part, we went to some lengths to try and silence that. Even then, they're not dead silent. I don't think it's really capable. I don't think it's really necessarily possible even um, to make, it probably is possible, but like 
you'd have to go to some considerable lengths to do it to make a completely silent um, fork coil. Whereas with rear shocks, most of the time it is silent. So I think that's uh, another another big reason that it's sort of maybe not immediately obvious. Yeah, fair enough. The noise one I had not thought about so much, but yeah. That does make sense as well. It's been a while since I spent a whole lot of time on a coil fork, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Well, like the coil, pretty much all coil forks throughout time, including the Smashpot uh, system, use um, heat shrink as like a, a spring isolator to stop it knocking in the stanchion. I mean, when you think about that, that's a pretty janky solution. The only problem is no one's really come up with a better one. So I think the, the current... Mazaki coil fork doesn't use any heat shrink on it. It has like this, uh, this other spring isolator up the top and uh, like a rod through the middle. And that seems to be reasonably effective, but it's still not dead silent and it's still, you know, it's, I would say, a, maybe a less kind of janky solution than heat shrink, but it's still, it's not something that I look at and be like, yeah, you have solved this problem. Right. And then, to kind of keep going with these, another one that uh, I'm curious for your thoughts on are uh, dual crown forks on things short of downhill bikes and duro bikes. Say, you know, we've got this new crop of beefier single crowns that has shown up with the 38 and the Zeb, and Owens probably has an RXF uh, 38 on the way at some point. And you know, when we started hearing rumblings about those, I did wonder if they were going to uh, take a crack at making some little bit lighter dual crowns and try to bring that to the enduro market. And obviously that didn't happen, at least as of yet. But um, curious if you think there is a future there or if, or if there, even if there's not really realistically a path for it in the immediate future, should there be? Is that something we should be uh, hoping for? I mean, you've got some obvious advantages structurally. You've got more room to fit more interesting spring designs in, creaking fork crowns continue to be an intermittent problem. Would you like to see dual crowns sort of trickle their way down to some shorter travel applications? I think that makes sense in many regards. Whether they would ever get off the ground is another another issue. So, I mean, if you look back historically, it has actually been tried a few times. So, most recently, there's the MRP, is it Bartlett? I'm not yep. super familiar with their lineup, to be honest. So, there's that. The 40... And the boxer currently can be reduced in travel, I think, to 180 mil, um, which overlaps. 190 with like the on the 40, but is 180 oh, yeah. for the boxer. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, the, like the the Rockshox Zeb can go to uh, 190 mil. So you could actually have a longer travel Zeb than a than a boxer, hypothetically. And if you go back, you know, Manitou with the. Uh, the Sherman, was it Sherman or the Travis? They had a 200 mil version of the single crown. And so... Oh, cool. yeah. Um, I think that was the Travis, you're right. Yeah. So, with those, you know, when you run a conventional fork, you don't really change any of the travel limitations, whether you have a single crown or a dual crown. You only change the sort of the loading at the crown and the stanchion interface to some degree. Um, but everything in the lowers, there's no real reason for that to change because you still... For a given amount of travel and a given amount of bushing overlap, you need a certain length of lower leg. So there isn't an immediate reason there why you would need to go to one or the other. Whereas if you have an inverted fork, you can get a lot more bushing overlap for a given amount of travel if it's a dual crown rather than a single crown. So I think 
I think people will try it and continue to try it. And you know, if going back again, um, sort of historically, that Rockshox did have a model in about 2005 called the Box of Ride, and that had uh, U-turn on it, so you could actually wind the travel down. I think from 170 mil. I think it was the same year they released the eight-inch boxer. So I think it was 170 or 180 mil down to 150 or 140. And so that, that kind of has been tried on some level. You know, Specialized had their. I think it was, was it the E150. Am I remembering that correctly? Or yeah, I... something like that. The that double crown that they had on the Enduro for a year or two, short-lived, but they took a crack at it. They took a crack at it uh, in more ways than one, and the. You know, unfortunately, like most times that suspension, uh, sorry, that frame builders have tried to build uh, suspension themselves, it hasn't hasn't typically been well accepted by the market. Whether or not it's good, you know, some of it has been okay. Oh, the best one actually, <laughs> best and worst, uh, the Maverick DUC32. Oh man, yeah, I forgot about those. Really light. That was really light. I think they were like they were lighter than a lyric. And so at that point, you kind of have to wonder, okay, well. Is there a point in having a single crown at all? But there were, you know, the the bike industry has a huge phobia, and kind of rightly so, in my opinion, of uh, proprietary parts. And so that Maverick fork, I believe, used a proprietary hub and axle, um, like it was a different diameter axle. I think it might have been 25 mil or something like that. And they had other manufacturability concerns in terms of alignment. So the way that the the uppers were constructed, they had the inverted um, design so they had the outer tubes with the upper tubes and they were welded to the lower crown you can't ever really weld anything like bang on dead straight you can get it good but when you have um, sliding surfaces that need to be very tightly toleranced um, that is a that's a hard thing to get right um, and once again being a, a sort of small manufacturer who are making other kind of quirky stuff as well um, like the Monolink, the ML7 bike, and this, you know, I think one of the first dropper posts that, if memory serves me, serves me correctly, Crank Brothers bought out, which was the Speedball or the Joplin. Yeah, that's right. And so they, they were kind of making all this seemingly whack stuff at the time, and I don't think many people took them super seriously. But from what I saw, those those forks were a pretty good attempt at that, and they had they had some quite intelligent features, you know, that offset the upper tubes quite a long way forward. So you had a very good turning circle. And I think uh, if you go back like into the 90s, Stratos uh, had, they sort of advertised 180 degree um, turning angle, basically. So, you know, you could turn the bars 90 degrees either side. And they'd just done that by having zero offset at the axle and having all the offset in the crowns. Um, which is the same as what what Maverick did. So I think some of those things, you know, the concerns that people have about weight and um, the steering can be overcome. Whether that will ever really be accepted by the market is kind of that's up for debate because I think a lot of people look at it and just think that's a downhill bike. I don't want that. You know, I want to pedal uphill. That looks heavy. Whether they should become a thing, yeah, I kind of think they probably should because you know we have enough issues. I mean. In Whistler, like you know, you've experienced this for yourself. In Whistler, people just destroy stuff. It doesn't matter what it is; it will get destroyed. And you know, the difference between a, a reliable and robust product and an unreliable kind of piece of shit is a matter of scale in terms of how long it takes to to break it, basically. But you know, we see enough creaking crowns that I have to think that it's costing, you know, and it might not be prevalent 
everywhere in the world, but we see enough creaking crowns across all models of fork and that I kind of have to think at some point someone says, hey, look, you know, we're just going to do a dual crown fork for this application. We're going to make it light. We're going to make it pedalable. I think that kind of should be feasible, but there's uh, there's definitely difficulties in doing so. And if it was if it was easy, someone would have already done it successfully. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to see some real attempts at it from the big players. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think I do think that there's a very real kind of perception issue with it. Um, like it so as a matter of fact, I've uh, run a 40 lowered to 180 millimeters by just chucking the air spring in a lathe and trimming a little off of it uh, on one of my enduro bikes intermittently for a while. And um, people see it and just you know, see me pedaling it up a hill and go, oh, that's weird. Like, how are you doing that? Like, well, you know, it's a little bit of extra weight. It's not like weight difference is that monumental, though. I mean, the 40 is a bit heavier, but uh, Boxer is only, what, 140 grams heavier than a 38, something like that. It's not like that weight difference is all that enormous. And yeah, I have to imagine that even if you, if you know, if you build around a little shorter travel and find a few ways to pair some weight, you could you could make it relatively competitive, especially as single crown forks are at the, t- the big end getting heavier with stuff like 38 and Zeb. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be, uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, as that, as you say, as that gap between the weights gets lower then uh, I suspect someone will, will try it and someone will probably make it stick eventually. It's, it is going to be tricky to, convince people of the the merits of it but like realistically it's predominantly the fork offset and the uh the weight that are the concerns everything else you know can be addressed but yeah we'll see how that goes and see whether it uh whether it really happens i haven't really found the uh steering angle thing to be too much of an issue either i mean there are very occasionally a tight switchback climbing that doesn't work but it's i can you know i've done it for a couple of years and can count on both hands the number of times it's been a problem so i don't think that's a major concern i do think there's maybe a little bit of a chicken and egg problem too where the number of enduro frames that the manufacturers give you the okay to run a dual crown on is somewhat limited and there's not a lot of incentive for them to say yeah sure go for it when there's not a fork for that application out there and at least not on a a major scale too and i think probably the main issue is just bashing in the top tube or down tube with the upper part of the stanchion in, a, in the event of a crash and whatnot you just don't there's not any good reason to design your carbon frame to withstand that right now so they don't that that is actually a very big concern as far as uh, dual crown fork damage goes as well like there have been um like the we've seen a number of the older mazaki 380s crack between the crowns uh from when people have crashed and the bumpers have just like punched a hole um, in the actual stanchion where it was relieved, and I think the very first, the very first uh, of the current kind of generation of Dorados, they I, I saw quite a few of those cracked um, from the same same thing like impact the bumper um, because I sort of tried so hard to reduce weight and reduce wall thickness up there. That is one of the things that means you you can't actually. Even though it makes more sense to sort of spread the load of, um, you know, on the steerer 
between the top and the bottom you introduce more of the fork that needs protecting from those impacts and like in the case of dual crown fork obviously when it hits the ground and it gets rammed you know the wheel gets pushed one way and the frame stops it from being able to turn um it can generate quite a lot of force there that a single crown typically can't because uh, a single crown will swing around and either swing around freely or often a brake lever will hit the top tube or something like that um the brake levers will typically move out of the way maybe chip the top tube even break the top tube but it typically isn't damaging the fork itself and because of the degree of weight optimization that has gone on in single crowns i i still don't think that you would actually be able to get a dual crown fork um lighter than the current crop of single crowns um for a comparable strength because the stanchion itself can't really be made lighter um you can't really make it much thinner before you start running into denting kind of issues you can't really make it much larger diameter and thinner wall for the same the same reason um and then if you have to extend that up between the crowns you have a certain minimum thickness that's necessary to prevent damage uh in those scenarios and yeah that that alone i think is uh difficult to difficult to sort of beat the optimization of a uh a single crown fork in term in in the weight sense there because i i just don't think that you can actually remove enough material elsewhere in a dual crown fork like the lowers don't really change in their loading or anything like that the axle doesn't change um the lower crown even that doesn't massively change like it does a bit but it's not so huge like you've still got the same kind of contact pressures um or very close to in the in the stanchions themselves so you kind of have uh you don't have the torsion on the lower crown in the same way um but the the actual stresses within the stanchion are not incomparable and i think once you start factoring in damage resistance uh, and even things like bushing like wear on the stanchions that's due to uh sort of hoop deformation um under bushing load then there is a, a practical minimum wall thickness and you can't use you, you can't sort of use the superior load distribution of a, a dual crown fork well enough to overcome that and so i think you know that is why i think it hasn't really been successfully done yet is just that you, no matter how hard you try you're going to run into those limiting factors with regards to weight and maybe someone can get around it maybe but it's kind of up in the air and without having to run all the testing and sort of fea thoroughly enough myself i can't really tell you for sure where that's uh whether that is like a no-brainer that we're going to end up there yeah that all makes sense we'll see what happens there mm -hmm. and i guess on a somewhat related note uh we were talking a little bit before this about uh linkage forks too do you what do you think the future is for those that one i'm sort of in the same boat i think the potential is there like from my in my opinion if you want the highest possible performance potential it does come from a linkage fork and i think you can do it at a weight that is comparable to anything currently out there or even lighter um i think you can significantly improve the friction i mean you can definitely significantly improve the friction you have a lot more variables and parameters that you can control and there's you know like we were discussing before there's kind of two sides to that coin as well so you have more variables that you can control for example you now have control over your brake dive characteristics that you don't have with telescopic all telescopics have the same pro dive sort of uh characteristic and you know 
debates about how much anti-dive or pro-dive you would want, notwithstanding, um, you now have control over it and the amount that we currently have probably isn't the optimal amount. You know, it's highly unlikely that you would ever want the fork to significantly dive under brakes. So whatever rate you want, it probably isn't what we currently have. So linkage forks can address that. They can address friction a lot better. They can address wear a lot better. They can address serviceability a lot better. Um, but they have, you know, for all of those concerns, then you've got like a new problem that hasn't been sort of robustly solved by the industry yet. Um, you know, you have completely new structures and new structural concerns. Um, you have bearings that I think are realistically much more robust than um, sliding surfaces. But on the flip side, you now have like bending and, you know, things that are rotating so that the load paths change as it, uh, as it goes through its travel. You have different inherent kind of uh, flex characteristics depending on the design that you go for. You have a leverage rate to contend with. You have, okay, well, how do we make it um, the right geometry so that it clears the frame? How do we, you know, get the axle path that we want? How do we look at the trail characteristics that we want? How do we do that? How do we do all these things at the same time, you know? And any one of those is pretty easy to solve. And I think, you know, there's there's been a lot of attempts at linkage forks over the years, um, but mostly they seem to have kind of put all their eggs in one basket and like try to solve one problem or perceived problem at the expense of other things. Like they've either, you know, they've tried to solve, let's say, brake dive um, <clears throat> and the motion ride fork does that very well. You grab the front brake, nothing happens. Um, the thing still works, but the, you know, the fork that I rode had some other deficiencies, um, particularly in terms of the available spring rates. Like you just couldn't run anything remotely firm enough for even a moderately heavy rider in my experience. Um, and so things like that, or, you know, the trust, uh, the shout and the message um, got kind of, they got slated pretty hard in reviews for harshness on certain impacts um, because their axle path was so extreme. And so, you know, all those things have new trade-offs that weren't immediately apparent maybe um, to someone coming who, who's like seen all the telescopic forks and all their, you know, deficiencies and they have plenty of them. Um, but then they've gone and, you know, solved one problem exclusively without maybe considering like, is this the best overall product? And I think telescopic forks, you know, maybe in the long term they will prove to be the best overall solution in spite of all their flaws and their deficiencies and the things that we know we don't like about them, like, you know, stanchions wearing out, for example, and, you know, torsional stiffness is always a bit of a concern um, and friction, things like that. So th these are all like real problems, but if you can't make an overall better solution out of something else, then, you know, the best overall answer with the least, with maybe the least glaring sort of fatal flaws um, will remain the best system. And I think, you know, if you're willing to integrate it with the bike frame, then you can maybe go a lot further to, I think then you can sort of go further to solving those problems, but then you've also got the problem of more buy-in required from the, from the consumer. So, you know, now it's not just like, if you want to change something about the fork, so, well, you have to want you know, in, you don't have to just want that fork. You also have to want that frame. Um, so the additional integration there, you know, in structure, cycle works would be the, the guys that I sort of have in mind with that. I was going to bring them up. Yeah, that was exactly where I was going to. Have you ridden one of those? 
I haven't. Um, we talked to them on uh, an earlier episode of Bikes and Big Ideas, I think episode 38 last year. So pretty familiar with the concept, but I've not managed to get on one yet. I would really like to. Yeah, they're really amazing. But again, you're, you know, it's not just the fork you're buying. You're buying a whole bike at that point. Um, and mountain bikers are very big on modularity and being able to swap things out, you know, put different wheels on, put different fork or shock or handlebars or whatever on that, you know, doesn't really apply in quite the same way in the, in the automotive or motorsport world. But they, I think they've done some really clever things with that bike. And I would say from a purely performance standpoint, they, that fork has the least compromises out of everything that, uh, everything that I've ever ridden. Like I would say it was, you know, had the least deficiencies and i think that's uh that's actually about the best thing you can aim for in a sense oh that's really interesting now i'm even more excited to hopefully manage to get on one some one of these days uh yeah it's been on my list for a while but um hasn't happened just yet yeah it's really cool it just my sort of initial impression was like wow this just doesn't do anything worse and that alone is actually really impressive <laughs> yeah that's pretty cool well, Steve, we've uh, gone pretty long here. I should let you get going soon. But just to wrap things up before we let you go, um, we do like to ask people kind of for a big idea, something maybe a little bit out there and crazy. And that might be <laughs> a bit of an unfair ask, given that we've gone through quite a few here already. But uh, anything else you might want to throw out there for the listeners? Yeah, I think one thing that would be real cool is to revert to like to truly revert to a single bike that does everything and does it well. So like something that's light enough to pedal uphill all day, something that has geometry to climb well, geometry to descend well, the weight and the kind of agility to be fun on flatter terrain, uh, the suspension travel and suspension control to be efficient and um, you know fun to ride in pretty much anything. I think that would... That would require a kind of integrated level of bike design that might really require like a big company with a history of that level of integrative design. And yeah, I would say maybe someone like Cannondale actually, who sort of do build their bikes as a complete vehicle, not just a frame. And then we buy a bunch of components um, and, you know, specialized of specialized of tinkered with that as well. But I think Cannondale and, you know, I guess there's smaller guys like white and, structure and all those guys that have sort of done similar things but um something where the whole bike is engineered as a complete unit that would be pretty fucking cool and especially if it had if it really had the kind of get on and go no messing around from the rider no like needing to set things up just like controls that are that are simple you don't need to be a technical expert to set the suspension up or make the drivetrain behave the way you want it to um, that'd be, that'd be where like bike development ends for me. So yeah, once we can arrive at the true, perfect, <laughs> do it all, then we can just stop. <laughs> We're done. Yeah. That'd be pretty sweet. That would be pretty sweet. Not sure how we get there, but, uh, here's to hoping, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, uh, this has been a lot of fun and really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you. Much appreciated. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Steve for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. 
from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.